You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Let's go to Galatians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. We are continuing our study in Galatians Um, No other gospel Paul's writing about. He's defending the gospel of Jesus. He's defending the fact that the gospel is nothing other than by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That that's it. You can't add anything to the gospel. You add anything to the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. This is Paul's argument throughout. And so there are some people that have come in after Paul into the region of the Galatians, uh, into the Galatia area, and they've been telling the churches, no, listen, you've got to add some stuff. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to fulfill the law. You've got to become all the way Christian. And the way you become all the way Christian is by being circumcised, fulfilling the law, becoming Jewish. You've had a good start in Jesus. Now you need to come all the way. And Paul says, no, you've got to reject that. Reject adding anything to the gospel. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is everything you need. He has done everything that you need. And so, we began looking at chapter 2 last week. And I'll tell you, this is how chapter 2 breaks out. We're going to get all the way to 14 this week, but I'll remind you. He tells two stories. Uh, two parts of a story. At the beginning of chapter 2, he tells about, Paul tells about when he goes to Jerusalem and meets with the pillars, Peter, James, and John. And he hasn't seen them in 14 years. And so by a, a revelation, he takes the opportunity, he goes there, and it's before the first missionary journey, and he wants to make sure that he is on the same page with the pillars, Peter, James, and John. That their gospel is the same. That that they know that their gospel is the same. That they know that Paul preaches by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because the Judaizers have been saying about Paul, listen, his gospel is too easy. The Judaizers have been saying, listen... For somebody to become a Christian, for somebody to become all the way, uh, to, to come all the way to God, they have to become a Jew to come all the way into the church. To become an all the way Christian, you have to become a Jew to because, come, to become, because to become one of God's people, you've always had to become Jewish. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it goes. There's nothing else that needs to be done. Jesus is the only sacrifice that was needed. And all the cleansing that ever needed to happen, Jesus took care of that. Nothing else needs to happen. Jesus alone. So, what Paul does is he brings Titus. Because the issue was Gentiles were hearing the gospel and coming to faith. Paul brings a pagan Gentile who heard the gospel through Paul. He accepted Jesus and he brings him there and they examine him. And the, and the conclusion was, is Titus, 
you indeed are a Christian. You indeed are a brother. You don't need to be circumcised. The law adds nothing to you. You, you. you don't need the law to be a Christian. Jesus is sufficient for you, Titus. And then what happens after that? Paul tells the story that they decided this, that uh, there's unity in the message, that Paul's gospel and the gospel of Peter, James, and John, it's the same gospel. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, same gospel. They are unified in the gospel, the purity of the gospel. It is the same message and at the same time. There is going to be a diversity in the methods, a diversity in the mission, a diversity in the strategy, a diversity in the audience. That the church is going to be diverse because the trajectory of the church, the trajectory of what God is doing through His Holy Spirit in announcing this grace that He's offering through Jesus is going to culminate in this thing in Revelation chapter 7 where every tribe and every tongue and every language is around the throne of God. Diversity. And so what they say is, look, we're going to protect the, the purity and the unity of the gospel and we are going to celebrate the diversity of the message and the methods and the audience and the strategy. And we're not going to fight about that. And so at the end there in verse 9 of chapter 2, they, they shake hands. They, uh, they, they, they give the grace to Paul. They say, that we, we, we receive and accept your apostleship. And then and, and they right hand of fellowship to he and Barnabas. And they go out and they say, let's all remember the poor. And they say, we're eager to do that because the gospel always looks outward. And so this first story, Paul going to Jerusalem, the gospel wins and the Judaizers that were trying to undermine Paul and trying to undermine the gospel, the Judaizers, they lose. Round one. And then, the second half of the story takes a different turn. Paul moves the scene there in verse 11. He moves the scene from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch is where Paul was living. Antioch was where Paul was serving and ministering to the church there. In the first scene, Paul goes down to Jerusalem. In this scene, Peter is going to go to Antioch where Paul is living. And this scene is, is so puzzling. Because Peter is going to travel to Antioch and visit Paul and see the church there where the Gentiles were coming to be saved. And yet what happens there is a vastly different scene than what we've just witnessed. So if you'll read with me, I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 11, and look at what, what happens when we get there. It's a hard story. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, but when Cephas, this is Peter, 
When Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, this is really harsh language. This is not, hey, we had a little disagreement. Hey, he showed up, we had kind of a minor misunderstanding. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And the way that this is written, he stood condemned. He was already condemned by what he did. And so I opposed him to his face. I made it public. This is not, he was condemned by his conscience, he felt guilty. This was not, his actions condemned him. This was, he stood condemned by God. That's the language Paul is using. What Peter does is serious. And Paul confronts him in front of everybody. Notice in verse 12, For before certain men came from James, from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now here's the scene. So Peter, he goes up to Antioch, and everything's fine. He's checking it out. He's meeting the Gentile Christians. He's eating with them, probably meeting in their homes, getting to know them. Then some men from Jerusalem come. They come from James. And we don't know what they tell Peter. But whatever it is they tell Peter, Peter begins to fear a group called the Circumcision Party. Now, there's probably not the same group. These men from James and the Circumcision Party. The Circumcision Party are probably Jews that are back in Jerusalem. But whatever these men begin to tell Peter, he begins to fear this group back in Jerusalem, these Jews, these circumcision group, probably non-believers. He begins to fear them, and out of that fear, he begins to withdraw from the Gentiles, ultimately ends up separating from them, and no longer is eating meals with them anymore. In verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force or compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? I saw that their conduct, the way that they were living. Listen, I knew what they believed, but I saw the way they were living. It wasn't in step with the truth of the gospel. So I took the opportunity. Here it was. All the Jews were over there. All the Gentiles were over there. So I stepped right in and before everybody I confronted Peter. Now don't you know that was a super fun meal. You ever had one of those like awkward family meals when somebody blows up and everybody's just sort of sitting there and you think, well, what do we do now? 
I mean, this is it. Paul takes on the Pope in front of everybody. And it wasn't because Peter wasn't a believer. But Peter wasn't acting like one. And because of it, Peter's influence was so great, it was having an effect on everybody else, even Barnabas. Well, I've really been wrestling with this all week. I mean, the commentators throughout the ages wrestled with it. Jerome, the old commentator, I mean, he, he, he was so uncomfortable with it. He said, hey, look, here's the deal. Paul, he just jumped to a conclusion. He got Peter all wrong. To which Martin Luther was like, what? Did Jerome lose his mind for a minute? I mean, he can't even handle it. He just keeps picking on Jerome the whole time through this. Back in the 18th century, the guy named F.C. Bauer, he was like, well, here's the deal. Here's how we solve this. Cephas, well, that's not Peter. Just a different Cephas. Well, that would be convenient. But it's not. It's Peter. I mean, this is hard. Paul is writing to the Galatians, and he includes this. I mean, he outs Peter in front of everybody. I mean, Peter's still alive when he writes this. Peter still has a ministry when he writes this. And it's out there. Well, I was wrestling with it all week. So, trying to make sense of it, I'll tell you a little story. Something that came to my mind this week as I'm wrestling with this. And it took me all the way back to when I was in the sixth grade at Jackson Elementary School. When I was in the sixth grade, sixth grade was still in the elementary school, and the way that our school was laid out back then, um, on one end of the school, there was a big cafetorium at the one end of the building. That's where the main entrance was. It was the principal's office, the, uh, the library, all those things were down there. And, and then from the cafetorium, there was one long hallway that led down to the other end of the school. Off this hallway were some corridors. As you went down the hallway, the first corridor led you to the first grade classrooms, the second corridor to the second grade, and then the third grade, and then the fourth grade. And then finally, at the end of the hallway, it led you into this giant open space. There weren't any classrooms. It was just a giant open space. And when you walked in to the right was where the fifth grade gathered, and to the left was where the sixth grade gathered. The entire fifth grade and entire sixth grade was in this giant open space. No classrooms. You were just divided up, 25 or 30 students uh, per space with a teacher. Um, a teacher would teach for an hour on a subject. A buzzer would buzz. Then you would rotate to a different space, and it was the 70s open classroom experience. Anybody, anybody else do this? Just the hippies in Abilene, Texas? This is what, this is what we did? So it was like to create this community, you know, and you had a desk or you could sit on the floor. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's just like open space. It's like everybody's looking around all the time. It's like, I wonder what everybody else is doing. I mean, I don't, I, we learn stuff, I guess. <laughs> but that's the way it was. 
Well, I was reminded this week, um, studying in the passage of something I hadn't thought about it in years. Honestly, never really gave it much thought until this week. And it was, it was what we call Fantastic Fridays. And so Fantastic Fridays, officially, we would have special things offered on Friday. So uh, officially, you'd have a Fantastic Friday, and they would have things like you could sign up and you'd do like woodworking or, or basket weaving or computering. I mean, I think that's what they called it back in the 70s. You know, they had a big screen. It was black, and you had green typing on it. Kite making. You know, I, I can't remember. But, but the other Fridays, that's what you really cared about because those were you had a half a day every Friday, and they were free days. You could do anything you want. They'd cut off at noon, and then you, you had like a free afternoon, free play. You did whatever you want. Now, here's the one thing you needed to know about Jackson Elementary, is that back in the 70s, Jackson Elementary, kickball was a religion. That's what we worshipped, was a kickball. And... Uh, for those of you that are non-initiates, I'm sorry, but I'll tell you how it goes. You, you played it in a baseball formation on a baseball diamond. The pitcher, whatever they called you, you rolled the ball, and then the batter was a kicker, and you kicked it. And then what happened is you kicked the ball, and you ran the bases. And the team on the field, they trying to get you out. And the ball is this maroon rubber ball. And it was bouncy. It was a weird size. And it was good for nothing else um, except... Uh, like war, you could play that back then before you, um, people sued people for that game. But kickball, I mean, it's a weird game, all right? I mean, it's weird, um, but it was, it was our religion. And to be somebody at Jackson Elementary, you had to love kickball. I mean, some played, some cheered. It, it was the stories we all talked about during the rest of the week. I mean, you'd be at lunch, or you'd be walking the halls, or you'd be in your space talking to somebody in their space, and you'd say, man, did you see so-and-so kick that? And they'd say, yeah, it's probably a world record. Kickball world record. Like a Guinness Book of World Records, because you know, we, we all did Guinness Book of World Records back then. But one of the laws... One of the laws of the open area was that you were either born a somebody or you could make yourself a somebody. And the way you did it was kickball. I mean, there were some natural-born kickball players, or, or so it seemed. And then everybody else, I mean, we lived or died with every kick and every touch of that weirdly sized maroon ball to prove that we were somebody. I mean, to have a story to tell or, or to be noticed or to be valued. I mean, praying that the kickball gods wouldn't humiliate us. Because there's nothing, nothing that could hurt you quite like swinging your foot towards the ball and missing Nothing. I mean, that, there's no, no more awkward, coordinated thing than missing that ball. The only thing that could hurt you worse is not playing at all. I mean, actually doing something else on a, on a fantastic Friday. Actually, it turns out plenty of kids did it. I mean, kickballers, we, we didn't notice that very much. I mean, I sure didn't until I did one day. I mean, I don't know why, for some reason, I couldn't go to kickball worship one Friday, and I might have been sick or something, but I stayed inside. 
And, and, and there were some kids, and they were like playing cards, and I, and I ended up playing with them, and, and I stayed inside, and, and there they were. They were the non-kickballers, and I, I was playing cards, and it was cool. And they were cool. And it turns out I, I had fun. Actually, it was a lot of fun. It was so much fun that I stayed in the next week, and I played again, and then I played again the next week. And I was looking back, I was thinking about it, and I remember wrestling with the freedom I was feeling. It was like being liberated from the law of kickball. I mean, the law to be somebody. You know, the, the law to be somebody that you make happen on the kickball field. And looking back, I think it felt pretty good, but there was nothing to anchor it to, and, and it didn't last very long. I know it didn't last long because I remember the moment that I went back to kickball. I mean, I remember that. I, it, was, it was, I remember, it was like the next week I was going to play, and I remember Chris Fanning. Oh, Chris Fanning. But I remember he came up. He was a kickballer, and he said something to me. Something, something, you know, degrading or disparaging, or something to embarrass me, you know, about staying in with the non-kickballers, and and I felt embarrassed and afraid I'd be shunned, and, and the law of kickball was far too powerful. I mean, the risk of being a nobody was too great, and so I walked away from the from the card kids. And I was thinking this week, and here's the deal. I, I could not remember one of their names. Not one. And I, it stung, actually. Oh, it seems weird. But I, I could still, I, I remember the moment, I remember it. And I, I, I tell you the story because I, I, I'm trying to make sense I'm trying to bring into today this confrontation between Paul and Peter in a way that translates into our lives. So, so here's the deal. Peter says that he conf or Paul says he confronted Peter to his face. Peter comes to Antioch, he's eating with the Gentiles, it's no problem. Some men come from James from Jerusalem. Text says Peter stops eating with the Gentiles, separates from them because he feared the circumcision party. We don't know what the fear was for certain. Maybe it was a loss of status with the Jews in Jerusalem. Maybe persecution for the Christians in Jerusalem. Maybe Peter's reputation of abandoning all the scruples and hanging out with the Gentiles. Maybe he wanted to protect his status. We don't know, but whatever it was, Paul saw that it was wrong. And so in verse 14, he says, his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And then he defines it this way. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? See, Peter, he believed he believed the gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. He affirmed it. He proved that in Jerusalem. But here in Antioch, 
His actions were not in step with that. His actions, what he was living out, was something different. He believed the gospel, but he's living out the law. His actions were saying, listen, if you're not circumcised, if you don't keep the law, if you're not clean, if you're not a Jew, then you can't be saved. In other words, if you want to be somebody, you have to play kickball. But he knew better. And we talked about it last week. If you were here, we talked about it. Acts 10 is where Peter learned all this. Peter's the very first person to ever take the gospel to the Gentiles. He takes it to Cornelius. He's staying at a guy named Simon the Tanner's house. He goes on the roof. He sees a vision. The sheet comes down, has animals on it, animals, reptiles, birds of the air. Leviticus 11 says all those are unclean animals. A voice says, rise, kill, eat. This is how Peter says it. He says to the voice, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. Those two words, common or unclean. Then the voice came to him, and it said, What God has made clean, do not call common. I've made it clean, Peter. You don't have to worry about that anymore. So then Peter, he goes to Cornelius' house, goes to the Gentiles' house, and he walks in and he says, listen, you yourselves know. I want you to know what the kind of transformation I've gone through. You know that me coming into this house, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. It's like it clicked with Peter. The penny dropped. That before Jesus, before Jesus, the law, it required sacrifices and ceremonies. You had to have that to come into God's presence. But Jesus, He fulfilled the law. He satisfied the law. God, the way to God now is through Jesus. He's the only sacrifice for sin. He's the only cleansing that matters. He's the the way to be holy. So Peter goes back. He tells all the Jews in Jerusalem right after that. Hey, listen, our reconciliation with God. The penny dropped for me. And here's the deal. Our fellowship with God, it did not come about because of our race, because we're Jewish. It didn't come about because of our culture, because we kept the law. It came about because of Jesus. And yet here in Antioch, what Peter's doing is he says, I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles because of their race or their culture. He separates from them. Because the way he's living is, Peter's believing that you're either born a somebody or you have to make yourself a somebody. That's the message he's sending. And it's what happens when you walk out of step with the truth of the gospel. The word, this walk out of step with, he's not walking in step with, it's a word, orthopodio. Sounds like orthopedic or podiatrist, means to walk. Ortho means straight. Paul's saying that the gospel, it has this trajectory. 
It, it, it sets you on a straight line. The, the gospel, it, it points you in a direction. There's a set of truths. The truth is, you're a sinner. And you're going to continue to try to control your life with all these different strategies to try to save yourself. Except, the gospel reminds you over and over and over again that, that Jesus fulfills the whole law. That Jesus is all you need. That he's fulfilled everything. When you believe in him, everything's been accomplished. He's done it all. But what Peter's doing here is what we'd call works righteousness. He's adding to what Jesus has done. Having to do something besides what Jesus has done to cleanse myself. Peter knew. Peter knew it wasn't true. He knew the truth of the gospel. But in his fear, he defaulted to try to save himself. Peter was trying to use his Jewishness to make himself feel righteous. He was trying to use his Jewishness to make himself feel clean. He was trying to use his Jewishness to try to make himself feel not afraid. I want to tell you two words. We've been talking about them for the last few weeks, but I want to put them up on the screen. I think I got them on the screen. Legalism and hypocrisy. Legalism. It's the right action done with the wrong belief. Good things... Linked with the wrong belief. Hypocrisy is a right belief done with the wrong action. You can believe rightly but walk wrong. Peter's actually doing both these things at the same time. So, so hear this. The Jewish law, the, the Jewish customs, they weren't wrong in and of themselves. Peter never forbid the Jews from doing them. He, he never told the Jews they couldn't practice them. In fact, Timothy, one of his companions, was half Jewish. He had Timothy circumcised, and he did it for a very strategic reason. He did it because he wanted Timothy to be able to go into the synagogues with him to be able to preach the gospel. He couldn't go unless he was circumcised. He, he did it for a strategic reason. He didn't do it so Timothy could be saved. He did it so Timothy could go and evangelize with him. But the Jewish laws or Jewish customs used in a way to earn favor with God or, or to try to ease your guilt or to try to clean yourself up or to try to save yourself or to try to be somebody, that's an offense to the work of Jesus. When you link those things those works, those behaviors, when you link that to God's favor to try to earn something or some standing with God that can only be accomplished by Jesus, well, that's what Paul's confronting Peter about. So let's bring it to today. Having a quiet time. A Bible study. I, make sure you hear me here. 
listening to Christian radio, coming to worship on Sunday. These are good things. I mean, listen, don't miss it. They're great things, but they become legalistic, a right action linked with a wrong belief. They actually become bad as soon as they get linked with a belief that when you do those things, you earn God's favor, you merit God's favor, or if you do those things, you have better standing with God. Well, I don't listen to rock music. I listen to Christian radio. I don't listen to rock music. I listen to talk radio or whatever it is. Or because you had a great quiet time this week, you have a better standing before God. Or you can have less guilt about your sin. So I sinned here and I'll make up for it with two or three extra quiet times over here. That is wickedness. I'm going to ease my conscience, my guilt, by doing some religious things over here and show God how really sorry I am. Rather than coming into God's presence, you try to appease God. You try to prove your worthiness to Him. That's legalism. It's works righteousness. Trying to cleanse yourself, trying to make yourself beautiful. And you do that because at your heart, what you're saying when you do that is that Jesus isn't enough. What Jesus has done isn't enough. And that's not walking in step with the gospel. That's what Peter was doing. I'll tell you what, isn't it, isn't it great It's not great, but it's great. I'm so comforted. You know what I'm comforted by? That this is Peter. It could have been anybody, right? It probably was anybody. I mean, it could have been me. No, it has been me. Like, three days ago. But that doesn't comfort you. This was Peter. You can always count on Peter, can't you? I mean, sanctification. A few steps forward, a few steps back. If you get discouraged in your Christian life, you think, man, I'm just not making any progress. Well, you know what? Make a little note out here. Say, thank you, Peter. And Peter, this isn't the end of Peter. Did you know this? This is Paul's first letter, written in about 46, 47, 48, maybe as late as 50, I don't know. This isn't the end of Peter. Peter's going to write some letters after this. You know what Peter's going to write about? Humility. This had to have been so humiliating for Peter. I imagine Peter sat there, and hung his head and thought, 
Oh, you are so right. Can you imagine how tempted he would have been to just fall down the shame hole again? Well, there I was. I was walking on the water and I sang. Jesus had to pull me out. And there I was. I confessed that Jesus is the Christ and then I get turned around and called Satan. That was awesome. And then I denied Jesus three times. That was the highlight of my life. And here I get called out by Paul in Antioch in front of the Gentiles. You know, my life's not really going like I thought it was. But he doesn't quit. You know, he writes a letter. You know what he writes his letters about? Humility. Not fearing. Casting, hurling your anxieties upon God. He even will say about Paul, our dear brother Paul. Be able to say about Paul, our dear brother. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Not giving up. And I don't think Paul gave up on Peter either. Or he wouldn't have written this. Paul loved Peter. And Peter loved Paul. I'm going to close with this, because D.A. Carson, he, he writes this little deal. I think it's helpful for us, trying to make sense of this for us. He, he writes this thing, the gospel's easy to understand, so easy to lose. The gospel's easy to understand, so easy to lose. It's easy to understand right here. Walk out these doors, so easy to lose. Listen to what D.A. Carson says. This gospel so easy to understand and it's so easy to lose because as soon as you understand it, you start put, patting yourself on the back for understanding it and then you're losing it. It's horrendous. Suppose you wake up, it's a miserable day with clouds and rain, the alarm didn't work, so you're late. Your spouse is grumpy and you can't find clean socks and you dash out to the car having sipped your orange juice and you didn't get a decent breakfast and you know your boss is going to growl at you. You put your key in the ignition, you turn it on and nothing and you knew... You knew you should have fixed the battery. Eventually, you get to work late and get chewed out, and you're given notice that you might get sacked from the company, and the company's slimming down, and it's hard economic times, you know, and you have a couple of difficult decisions, and then you're at the water cooler, and some other coworker raises a Christian question or comment, and you can't be bothered, and you just bite his head off about it. Then you go home, and there's a note. I'm out with my friends. You'll find day-old lasagna in the fridge if you want it, and then your kid's... Uh, you see your kids a little later, and they're all in a really bad mood. And then that night, you get down to pray, and it sounds like this. Dear Heavenly Father, it's been a rotten day. I haven't reacted very well, and I'm really sorry. But it's been a rotten day, and I'm sorry. And I'll try to do better tomorrow. Bless everybody in Jesus' name, amen. Then he says, am I the only one ever had a day like that? It's a bad day. And did the best I could. And I'll just try better tomorrow. Just guess I'll just try better tomorrow. Now lay me down to sleep. Hope you don't kill me in the middle of the night. 
I mean, right? Then he goes on. There are other days when you've had a good night's sleep. You wake up, the birds are singing, the air is fresh and clean, and you know this one's going to be a winner. While your clothes are laid out for you, the smell of bacon coming from the kitchen, yes, a good breakfast before you go. You get out in the car, put the car in the, uh, the key in the ignition, and vroom, yes, the, you drive to work, and you get there early, and the boss notices and commends you and says, you know, actually, I'm thinking of expanding the division. After all, our numbers look better than we thought. You'd be up for being manager of the division. Yes, Lord. Then, some poor sucker, the same poor sucker who got clobbered at you by the, at the water fountain a few weeks ago is back, and he dares to bring up something religious again. And this time, you testify with humility and grace and insight, and it ends up by inviting him to church on Sunday. And he promises that he might well come. And you get home, and there's a wonderful meal, and the kids are right little angels, and family devotions are superb. And then that night, you go to bed, and your prayers sound like this. Eternal and majestic Heavenly Father... In the fullness of your grace, I bow before you at the end of this day and thank you for your magnificence and your munificence of all your faithful blessings upon me, your humble servant. Pretty soon you're into propitiation and reconciliation. You're praying for people at the church, the ministry, the gospel, worldwide mission, and all the missionaries you've ever heard of, and all their first cousins twice removed, and on and on, and pretty soon you go to bed justified. And he says, and you've been an utter pagan both times. Because you've had the amazing audacity to think that you enter the presence of our holy God on the basis of what sort of day you've had. Can you think of anything more gross, more demeaning to grace, more destructive of justification? It's like spitting on the significance of the cross work of Christ, and we do it all the time. The doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, understanding the exclusive sufficiency of the cross work of Christ is not some esoteric doctrine for theological meatheads. Rightly understood, it shapes who we are. It touches all of our values. Even when we're serving, we resolve to serve out of gratitude. We catch ourselves up in our pride and confess our sin again and again and again and again. But we've been justified because Christ loved us and gave himself for us. The gospel, grace, so easy to understand. So easy to lose. Isn't it? You know, I'm thankful that this is here. I'm thankful that that in God's perfect will, he inspired Paul to include this encounter with Peter. We can see just that. That we'd be encouraged not just believe the gospel, but to walk in the straight line, the trajectory of the truth of the gospel, to cling to it, right? Cling to it. I get dragged away by the the law is a kickball in our life, trying to make ourselves somebody, but believe that because of Jesus in Christ, He's made us everything we need to be. Jesus has done it 
all. By grace, through faith, in Christ. That's our hope. Our only hope. That's the gospel. So if you will, would you, would you bow with me and we'll pray and thank God for his word this morning. Father, thank you for your word. I pray this morning if anybody has not come to the place of faith, of saying, yes, I believe that. I, be, I trust Jesus. I've been living too long trying to trying to be somebody, trying to make myself somebody. I, I set that aside and I look to your son, Jesus. Father, I pray you grant faith this morning to look upon your son, Jesus, and say, yes, I believe. His death counts as mine. His resurrection counts as mine. He took my sin. I, I get His perfection. Father, this morning, they, they believe, they, they trust Jesus. Be made new this very morning by grace through faith in Jesus alone. We ask this. Only you can do this in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit, and that's what we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.